Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. Before we get started, I want to tell all the artists listening about Bango. If you're like many of the artists I know, you spend more time managing your career than you do creating art. Bango helps you with this. To learn more, go to bangoart.co slash podcast. That's B-A-N-G-O dot co slash podcast. And if you're looking for original art, Bango is an amazing place to find art from some of the best emerging artists. Now, in this episode, I'm excited to welcome the CEO of Invaluable, Rob Weisberg. If you've ever been to an auction, participated in one online, or even just seen a record-setting announcement on the front page of the New York Times, chances are it was run by Invaluable. They are used by more auction houses than anyone else worldwide. And while Rob was new to the art world when he became the CEO five years ago, he's no stranger to bringing old industries online. Today, I talked to Rob about how tech is changing one of the oldest professions, why data is leveling the playing field when it comes to auctions, and what he thinks the futures of auctions are. So please, allow me to welcome today's guest, Rob Weisberg. So if I ask someone, what does Domino's Pizza, Zipcar, and online auctions have in common? I'm not sure there'd be many people who could guess that, that that's your resume, that's your experience. I, I, I'd love to hear, I mean, what's the story? How, how did we get here? And you know, what was that moment when you realized that Invaluable was, was what you wanted to, to start? Well, Ethan, I, I'd say um, when I looked at Domino's Pizza, when I looked at Zipcar, when I looked at Invaluable, I saw uh, actually striking similarities in the fact that you had three industries that were uh, slow to technology adoption, that hadn't really embraced e-commerce the way that you had seen in, in retail, for example. And so uh, they were ripe for innovation and disruption. Uh, what I like to do is to... Uh, to build and to be able to take an industry, the QSR, the quick service restaurant space, to have the distinction of taking the very first online pizza order for Domino's Pizza and building it to uh, be a multi-billion dollar corporation within a corporation was uh, a ton of fun. Um, And once it got to a certain scale, the opportunity to apply that insight, that knowledge uh, to the rental car industry uh, was really what the move to Zipcar was all about. Uh, Zipcar, when I got there, uh, was about a 200 or so thousand members. Uh, we grew it to over 750,000 members over the next three years, um, all through uh, technology channels. So um, we actually described ourselves as a technology company that just happened to have cars. Uh, and uh, for anybody who's ever used uh, an ATM or a self-service kiosk at the airport, Uh, I'd say we all know that you can have uh, an improved customer experience through a digital channel uh, versus the older stodgy type approaches of of having to have that one-to-one human interaction. 
when I looked at Invaluable, uh, the auction industry was one of the oldest industries known to man. Um, this is truly an industry that's over a thousand years old. You see um, you know, references to it in, in biblical times. And so to be able to uh, take the world of fine art and collectibles, uh, apply modern technology to it, um, was, uh, was an opportunity to go have all that fun again. That's great. I mean, had you uh, participated in an auction beforehand or, I mean, how, I mean, how did you even think to know or know about this space? So I wouldn't have described myself as an auction expert. I had participated in, in, in live auctions before um, really as a, a charity event, generally for my kids' schools and, and things of, of that sort, but not at the high end of the market. Um, what I saw on, on TV and in the movies was always interesting to me. I'd say one of the, the, the biggest misunderstandings around the auction industry and one that I certainly held was that uh, the price points of things being sold at auction was outside of my financial wherewithal. You hear about the $110 million paintings. You don't really hear about the $5,000 paintings, and yet that's the majority of what's being sold uh, at auction. I think most of the audience probably has never even experienced perhaps an online auction. Do you want to just quickly tell us like what that's like? Sure. Or how, do, how does it work? So uh, an online auction is, uh, is really a, a virtual experience with a live auction that's happening in a brick-and-mortar location. So Sotheby's, for example, is a client of ours, and what you've seen in the movies on a Sotheby's sale or on a TV show about a Sotheby's sale really is, is quite true. You have an auctioneer in the front of the room. You have uh, high net worth individuals who are, are raising paddles, um, bidding on, on various pieces of art. Um, and what we're doing is we're allowing consumers to access that live auction to get beyond the velvet rope at Sotheby's to bid against the people in the room in real time, um, but to do so from their laptop or from their iPhone. Um, and it's a pretty powerful thing in that you're capturing the in-room excitement through audio and visual um, and yet um, and video, and yet you have the ability to bid in, in a Sotheby's sale while sitting on a beach um, or from the sideline of your kid's soccer game or from the ski lift. And so that level of accessibility uh, for folks who are time-starved and looking for convenience and yet want the finer things in life is a, is a, is a real game-changer. How else do you see this enhancing the experience that people have? I mean, bringing digital allows people to do this anywhere. Does it also, do you think, bring new people to the market as well? Absolutely. So we see a younger demographic than what you'd see in the traditional offline auction industry. And uh, you know, the idea that uh, you or I, who have full-time jobs, might have the freedom and flexibility to be in Sydney, Australia at 2 o'clock in the afternoon next Tuesday uh, is, is a far-fetched idea, or that you and I have the time to flip through paper catalogs from 5,000 auction houses to find the one Andy Warhol or the Ming Dynasty vase that you're interested in bidding on um, is also an unrealistic expectation in today's society. And so by bringing this younger demographic, um, this on-demand generation who is accustomed to streaming video or accustomed to um, being able to ask Siri a question in real time and get an answer in real time or uh, being able to to buy anything with the swipe of a finger from Amazon and have it show up on your doorstep the following day, um, we're taking that audience and and making auctions uh, something that that's tangible for them and something that's more approachable for them on, on their own terms. That's fascinating. I mean, I 
you know, I, I see myself as that, you know, on-demand generation that would want to be able to participate and would have never gone to an auction otherwise. Are there other behaviors that you see that change? I mean, when it's online, I mean, people that participate more, trends that are happening um, that, I mean, are unique or interesting or just that you found even surprising? Uh, you know, what I found surprising was the, I'd say, eclectic nature of collectors. Um, people uh, have a tendency to think of a collector as somebody who buys just one category of merchandise. I buy contemporary art and all I buy is contemporary art. And that's just simply not true. Um, people who are upwardly mobile, who are digital, um, they have homes to fill. They have passions uh, that they pursue. And so, yes, they might buy a piece of contemporary art or several pieces of contemporary art, but they're also buying fine wines and classic cars and have a passion for sports memorabilia. And so uh, I think the definition of a collector has, has changed a bit. And really, it's, I'd say, digital channels that are, that are opening up that world and those insights. Yeah. You know, one of the things within the art space, people often find it intimidating, you know, and I think certainly going to one of these auctions and maybe not having an idea of what's going on. Do you think that technology makes the experience less intimidating for somebody? Definitely. Um, so one of the, the staples of, of what we offer, the foundational element, is data. Um, and data is not nearly as sexy as the art that we sell, but data levels that playing field for novice buyers. So if you wanted to see what every Andy Warhol has sold for at auction over the last 10 years, you could leverage our data to do so. And so when I say it's leveling the playing field, it gives you an opportunity to be a more informed bidder, to understand the value of a piece that you're bidding on uh, in the same capacity that somebody who was a dealer or an expert in, in that particular artist or that particular category um, might have had an advantage over you in the past. And so by leveling that playing field and arming our, our bidders with knowledge, um, I think goes a long way into, um, to reducing that stress level, to adding to that comfort level. Um, I'd say in addition to that, you're, you're right. I mean, I think people have a tendency to be intimidated by auctions because of what they see in, in media. It's this $110 million painting or um, these items that are being sold by somebody who either has more money or has more expertise than I do. Um, and it, it, it's just not true. Um, the, the reality is that there are the, the vast majority of pieces in the auction industry, 95% plus, are being sold for $10,000 or less. And so there are plenty of pieces out there that are within the reach of, of any or all of us. Um, and so I think um, the fact that we allow a, a prospective buyer to dip a toe in the water with auctions, to see a live auction while sitting in, in the comfort of their home, to potentially bid but not get out over their skis, uh, to do so in a more anonymous fashion, all adds to that, that comfort level and reduces friction of, of entering into the auction world. The, and the, the point you make about in your own home, I think that's huge because with anything in sort of the art world, it's something that people don't often experience. And if they do, it is in a physical space like a museum, like a gallery, like an auction house where like literally they have a, a you know, a, a physiological reaction walking in there, which is this kind of clamming up. And so like you said, doing it in your own home, it's a place of comfort and it gets people, you know, open. 
Absolutely. I mean, look, there's there's nothing uh, I'd say more comforting than sitting on your couch, uh, you know, and, and drinking a scotch. And- <laughs> if, if that's what it takes, you know, you yeah. can be sitting there in your bathrobe. Uh, you know, you can you can get comfortable and you can enjoy the experience in ways that you couldn't do um, by uh, by participating in a live event. Yeah, you know, I'd say it's proximity too. I mean, some of the top auction houses are scattered all over the world. I mean, yeah. we do business. Um, certainly with Sotheby's that has offices in, in New York and London and elsewhere around the world, Hong Kong. Um, we also do business with Art Curiel in Paris and Leonard Joel in, in Sydney, Australia, and 5,000 auction houses around the world. Uh, and, and most people are not going to have the ability to hop on a plane to go bid on a piece, uh, particularly if a piece is $5,000 or less. It could cost you more to fly to Sydney, Australia um, than the, the piece is actually worth. And so... Um, that uh, also helps reduce friction in the process and allows people to, to see a piece, to use um, you know, video enhancements for super zoom capabilities so you can get down to even looking at the brush strokes of a piece that would be hard to do with the naked eye that technology allows for. Um, and all of that, I think, makes the, uh, the buying process less intimidating. Yeah. How, how are auction houses responding to all this? I mean, I know in other parts of the art world, there's still a, a level of apprehension from, you know, emerging artists, even galleries about what technology means for them. You know, I'd say um, I've been with the company for five years and I've really seen a, a metamorphosis in a, in a relatively short period of time. Um, I think you had some early adopters who understood that technology um, is the future. The future is now, and they had to embrace it, or they would be dinosaurs. Um, I think you had some folks who were a little more apprehensive about embracing the technology, and some um, who were in the third category are really digging in their heels, saying, "Oh, you know, this whole thing that called the internet—it's just a fad." Um, I, I'd say that um, the early adopters uh, paved the way. They were the tip of the spear for the fence sitters and uh, are, dragging, are kind of dragging the naysayers along the way. Um, what we're seeing now is, is much more of uh, embracement, embracing of, of technology in general. Um, we signed 575 new auction houses in 2016. So, you know, we're signing several a day at this point, whereas we used to be doing a, a ton of outbound uh, outreach um, in, a, in a sales capacity to try and sign new auction houses. Today, um, much of the selling process is inbound um, as auction houses are looking for new sources of demand and technology is is taking a regional auction house and giving them global reach. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful thing. I mean, absolutely. It's something you'd think galleries would be more open to. The what, Was there a tipping point, though, that you can look to to say, you know, this was sort of the point where people went from just the early adopters to a broader audience or when the inbounds started to happen? You know, I'd say we started working with Sotheby's three years ago, um, and uh, certainly we we did... Uh, a bit of PR around that. I think people have a tendency to look at Sotheby's as a market leader, um, trying to get their heads around which direction is is the market going, and um, Sotheby's taking a leadership stance on embracing the technology and partnering with Invaluable, um, I think was a tipping point for a lot of auction houses that might have said, well, I'm, I'm not sure that I need to be there. So you did a conference earlier this year, or not earlier, a month ago. Yeah. Tell me about that, because I, I think it is an amazing story. Uh, it was a pretty incredible experience. Uh, 
doing this for the first time uh, here in Boston, I'm doing it for the first time ever in this industry. There, there is no industry association for the top auction houses in the world. Um, I, I think many of them view each other as frenemies. They might uh, be Great. polite to each other and, and um, be open to seeing each other at a, at a cocktail event, um, but they certainly view each other as competitors as well. And so um, we saw an opportunity. We thought we were uniquely suited to bring the top auction houses in the world um, here to Boston um, for several days to talk about the key issues and opportunities facing our industry. Um, and it was everything from, of course, the, the, the digital aspects, which, uh, which we're an integral part of, but it was also auction law, uh, the ivory trade, um, things about um, consigner management and marketing. And, and so it gave these auction houses an opportunity to really share ideas and, and knowledge share for the betterment of, of the industry as a whole. Um, I'd say it was uh, it was unprecedented uh, is the word that I would use to describe it in that we had you know 60 65 of the top auction houses in the world from 16 countries um, to have Sotheby's and Christie's and Phillips and Bonhams all in the same room at, at an event like this uh, is unprecedented um, and to uh, to say that uh, it's the first of many um, is, is absolutely the way that we're thinking about it. So our next event is going to be held in September in London, um, and we're going to do it every year. I expect that this coming year we'll invite even more because it is an invite-only event. We want to keep it relatively tight to the top auction houses uh, globally, but I could see us bringing it to the top 250 auction houses in the world in the not-too-distant future. And why, I mean, you use this term frenemy, I mean, and it being the first ever, I mean, how was it, like, what made you guys decide to do that? And, and how did that attitude, or did the attitude of the frenemy thing change over the course of a few days? Um, so we decided to do it for a couple of reasons. I think um, we were inviting clients who are very frequently looking to us to provide more than just technology solutions. Mm -hmm. They're looking to us to help pave the path for what the future of the industry holds. And, and certainly we want to have a thought leadership position in, in the industry. Um, we get asked questions for things that, that just wouldn't be traditional technology or e-commerce related. Uh, we talk about things like what's the future of the paper catalog and personalization and how can digital be applied to improve um, consigner management or the cataloging process. And so um, based on that, we felt like we had an opportunity to have a larger conversation. Um, and um, it, it's great for us to have both uh, customers and prospects uh, at, at the event. Um, and yes, I'd say uh, the frenemies uh, became more friendly by the end of the event. I think um, uh, wine helps in that yeah. respect. Uh, we certainly had a few drinks together and a lot of fun. Um, but it was, uh, it was just a, a terrific event. Um, and one that having done it, I said, you know, on, on a scale of one to 10, I, I would have given it an 11. Um, we did uh, do a, a post, uh, summit survey, um, and a hundred percent of attendees said that they would attend again. And I think that really speaks volumes as to the value that, that they saw in it and that we saw in it, that we all want to make that investment in time and money to do it again. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think this is one of the challenges of the the art world, I'll say, as a whole, is that everyone's in their own corner, you know, and the artists are in their corner and the galleries are in a corner. It sounds like in the auction industry, I mean, it's similar, where they all, you know, were frenemies and were in this field for probably a long time, but had never really interacted. 
And so do they, you know, it feels like they came together and walked out, you know, all now knowing someone for the first time, maybe a little bit more, but also coming away with collective ideas that's going to benefit all of them. Absolutely. You know, I I think all boats rise with the tide and um, each and every one of us in this industry has an opportunity to invest not just in our own businesses, but in the, in the industry to the betterment of all of us. And, you know, I, I look at it virtually every other industry out there, whether it be the, the media world. I mean, hell, even milk has got a, uh, a an association um, to promote the industry for the betterment of, of dairy farmers. And so um, there's absolutely no reason why that shouldn't be in place for artists, for galleries, for auction houses. Um, and we have the benefit of having relationships with, with many of those constituencies and to um, have the opportunity and the ability to see the interactions between them and the symbiotic relationship between them. Um, I think most of these folks are, are going to be closer friends versus the enemy portion of the frenemies. Now, for all of you artists listening who want to be able to market yourselves like you are the most famous artist, Vango can help. Vango makes the entrepreneurial side of being an artist easy, saving you hours each week from the marketing and admin tasks so that you can focus on creating. In a way, Vango's like your virtual assistant or manager, and their killer feature is the ability to manage all of your online portfolios and storefronts in one place. They also create a website for you, show you who your collectors are, provide insights into what is selling, and they'll even help with your taxes. So, if you're an artist who wants to spend time doing what you love, go to vangoart.co slash podcast to learn more. That's V-A-N-G-O-A-R-T dot co slash podcast. And now, back to the episode. So, you're based in Boston, or outside of Boston. You know, it's not known as an epicenter for art. It's not Hong Kong, it's not London, it's not New York. Has that played a role, either good or bad, in in your success? You know, I'd say it it makes us unexpected. Um, uh, as as I mentioned uh, earlier before this interview, I'm I'm originally from New York. I'm I'm down there frequently. My clients are there. I have many clients in London and in, in Paris and in Hong Kong. Um, and so we we have employees in each of these areas as well. Um, what Boston is, while it may not be a uh, an art world epicenter, it's a technology world epicenter. And so for us to be a stone's throw away from MIT and Harvard and BU and BC and Tufts uh, makes uh, recruiting some of the best technology and e-commerce minds and digital media minds in the world um, uh, a, a real competitive advantage. Um, for us, uh, digital actually shrinks geography. And so um, just as we're taking buyers in Boston or New York and giving them access to auction houses in Paris or at Sydney, um, we're also shrinking the geography of the world through technology. Uh, we could be located anywhere. Um, and so I, I haven't seen it as a, a disadvantage being here in Boston. I've seen it as an advantage. Yeah. I mean, because if you look at the space as a whole, there's others that have played in it. I mean, there's Paddleade or Artsy or Auction Auto. I mean, how are you different? And I mean, they were all based in these big epicenters. So do you think that was part of the reason that maybe they weren't as successful because they were playing too much to 
You know, I'd say um, they they all have slightly different business models yeah. than we do. Um, when I looked at Auctionata, that was uh, Berlin-based, um, they were really attempting to be an online auction house. Um, they were taking consignments. They were trying to compete with the traditional brick-and-mortar auction houses like the Sotheby's of the world. Uh, we're a marketplace business and uh, a, a technology marketplace business first and foremost. And so we're partners to the auction houses, not competitors to them. Um, we are an incremental source of, of demand for them, which drives up average lot value, which drives up total hammer. Um, we are a benefit to our bidders and buyers by giving them access uh, remotely to some of the top auction houses and, and top pieces in the world um, at their fingertips from the comfort of their home. Um, I'd say that in the case of, uh, of Paddle 8, uh, Padalate, as I think you know, they merged with Auctionata at one point, and then Auctionata ran into some uh, financial challenges, went to insolvency, and ultimately spun them off. Um, I, I don't know that geography was advantageous or disadvantageous for any of them. I think, um, for me, fundamentally, it was it was more of a business model challenge than a uh, geography challenge. Where do you see auctions going in the next 10 years? What's your vision? Um, I see auctions growing exponentially over the next 10 years. Um, we're already seeing uh, the, the trends to support that. Um, I would say it's absolutely going to be a digital world. So the paper catalog is going away. Um, the, the ability to personalize the experience for consumers. So if I know that you're a collector of Andy Warhols and Mickey Mantle baseball cards and Bordeaux wines and I don't know, Porsche speedsters, we have the ability to essentially customize a personalized electronic catalog based on your specific wants and needs. Mm. Um, and that dangerous. type of care, <laughs> it can be dangerous um, because you may end up spending more than you had intended. But I'd yeah. say um, it's a benefit. It's yeah. we, we are acting as your personal shopper. Um, and so... Uh, people are, people want the white glove treatment. They want to be able to have that personalized experience that's made for me. How do you take the auction industry and make it work on my terms um, and be able, I being each individual out there, because it's going to be something different for everybody. Um, I think that the auction industry uh, is going to be um, absolutely uh, about transparency and about data um, because trust ultimately builds uh, liquidity in marketplaces. And so uh, the digital marketplaces is ideal for, for the auction industry. And, and we're just seeing uh, growth in the auction, uh, the digital aspects of the auction industry outpace the traditional auction industry uh, by five, six X in, in terms of growth rates every year. And so um, it's going to be a bigger and bigger part of, of their core business. I think 10 years from now, the auction industry is going to look quite different. Yeah, just don't build an uh, Amazon Echo integration because then it'd be too easy to sit there. And <laughs> you order. can literally bid through voice. Um, you yeah. know, uh, I, I will tell you that my uh, I, I was looking at the Alexa app recently, yeah. and uh, apparently my 11-year-old daughter has been uh, tapping Alexa to help her with her math homework. Oh, my God. <laughs> so do, it, back to that point, though, the five or six X, I mean, is is the pie getting bigger or is it just taking over offline? 
Incoming um, online. It's both. Yeah. Um, so there are ebbs and flows in the auction industry and the art market. Those are widely reported by uh, TAFAF, the Art Basel Art Market Reports, um, the uh, Hiscox Report. And you see it year after year, kind of these ebbs and flows in the art market, uh, ups and downs. Um, some of it correlates with the financial market. Some of it does not. Um, but you know, I'd say making art more accessible to the masses um, bodes well for the future of the art market. It's uh, the days of saying that there's only going to be 1% of, of the population who is going to be uh, immersed in the art market are, are gone. I, I think, and I, I just think that's the way the industry needs to think about it. Um, we want to be embracing, we want um, folks new to, to the art market, not to be intimidated by it. Um, we need to be thinking in terms of customer lifetime value and a customer acquired in their 20s is somebody who we're going to um, continue to interact with until their 80s. Um, and so uh, digital allows us to reach that, that millennial audience, that younger demographic in a meaningful way. Yeah. Do you think in the future there, the sort of offline component of auctions goes away? You know, I'd say you're seeing some of that happen today. I wouldn't yeah. say completely. Are there um, only online? There are. I mean, yeah. Sotheby's uh, announced they're running 30 only uh, online-only auctions um, this year. All of them are being run uh, through Invaluable, with Invaluable. Um, and you're seeing more and more of that across the industry. I'd say um, all of them understand that the cost of the, the operational expense of running a, an auction with the wine and cheese and the people coming in and the white gloves of, of showing each piece um, is much more expensive than doing it digitally. Um, and so there's a cost consideration there. I wouldn't say it completely goes away because there's, there's just a thrill of the evening sales at, at Sotheby's and others that um, it, it, I think is, is going to be very hard to replicate in a digital environment. It's like going to a concert versus listening to music online. I totally agree. You know, you're going to listen to it online, but you know, you're going to want to go to a concert every once in a while. Absolutely. What else? I mean, so you, it seems like, and I've had a number of conversations that the use of the adoption of technology in this space has been faster perhaps than others. The openness is, is growing more. I mean, there's still, if you look at sort of emerging artists or some of these marketplaces that exist to sell art, you know, within the hundreds to low thousands, it hasn't clicked yet. Do you have any thoughts on why, why auctions have had more success or things that you see from a technological perspective that will change that and within the sort of broader ecosystem? You know, there are certain organizations out there that I look at that I would say have changed the art market at the lower price point um, or for emerging artists. Um, you've got Saatchi Art, I think is a good example of taking artists that don't yet have gallery representation um, allowing them to represent themselves and, and getting more of a artist direct to consumer type model um, as they build their own brands. Um, you've got art.com, really more in the, in the print space and yeah. things along those lines, certainly at the lower end. Um, but that's the entry point for a lot of younger consumers at a price point that, that they can afford um, and at a, at a level that they can, um, you know, 
get their feet wet and start to uh, immerse themselves in buying technology online. So we did a, a recent study and now over half of US consumers have said that they are comfortable with buying art online. That's quite different from where it was even five years ago. And so that mind, uh, mindset, you know, mindset shift over time, I, I think, is uh, a precursor to uh, consumer behavior in the future. Mm -hmm. In some cases, auctions, it's a known commodity, which probably has some advantage, too. If you're buying a Warhol print, I mean, you know it's a Warhol. It's kind of, I don't need to see it in person to believe it. Right. And the auction houses are accredited auction houses, yeah. and they have... Uh, reputational risk, and there are specialists who are vetting the pieces, who are ensuring that they're not fraudulent. Um, it's it's just quite different than buying from some faceless, nameless person. Uh, when you're buying from Sotheby's, you know that Sotheby's is standing behind the piece that you're buying. Yeah. What's the last item that you got on auction? Um, the last piece that I bought. Or anything. Uh, you, I've, you? I've bought a lot at auction. Yeah. Um, some high price points, some low. Um, I'd say the most recent. I bought a. Uh, I bought a, a first edition book. Um, it was uh, called The Assault on Everest. It was about a failed attempt to uh, summit Everest by a, uh, a UK uh, army division, um, and it was a fascinating book written in the early uh, or late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, and uh, I, I'm into the outdoors, and there's something, uh, as a digital guy, there's something enjoyable about reading something in actual print every once yeah. in a while. Um, and so for me, that was, uh, that was an exciting, uh, exciting win. That's great. Well, I've learned a ton coming into this, not knowing much about auctions, so thank you very much. Before I let you go, can we do a quick rapid fire? Absolutely. All right. Who's your favorite artist? Uh, you know, I'd say that shifts, but right now I would say Monet. I was uh, with my wife and kids over in France this summer and uh, had an opportunity to visit Monet's house, uh, to see the gardens, to uh, look at the water lilies, and uh, and really enjoyed that experience. So right now I'd put him at the top of my list. All right. What's your favorite Domino's pizza topping? Pizza? <laughs> uh, banana peppers. Uh, I like the spice. Uh, yeah. For me, Domino's pizza, we would do a lot of experimentation. Um, and uh, it was thin crust, uh, cheddar cheese, tomatoes, and banana peppers. It was quite the combination. Uh, that sounds, I'm going to go try that right now. All right. And lastly, what's your life motto? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, my life motto is be scared, but do it anyway. Um, it's, uh, you know, we like pushing the envelope around here. I like building things, trying things that have never been done before in, in industry. So from a, a work standpoint, definitely that drives me. Um, I'd say it also drives me in, in my personal life. I, uh, you know, I, I like getting in the outdoors. I like whitewater rafting. I like, uh, zip lining and, and scuba diving and climbing things Everest. along those lines. I would love to climb Everest. I'm not sure my wife would be uh, would be real happy about that one. I, but I've been to base camp. I, I have biked, you really? I, I biked, yeah, from Lhasa oh, Tibet to Kathmandu. That's a, that's a bucket list thing for me, I've got to say. I, I have uh, hiked parts of the Alps and have just loved the experience. Uh, I did uh, the rim to rim of the Grand Canyon last December with wow. a couple of friends. Um, in, in the winter time. So it was 12 degrees with crampons and all of that. But uh, Everest would be a, uh, a dream come true. I just, uh, I'm not yeah. sure my wife would be too happy about it. Kilimanjaro is another one that you can do. And that, that you, you one, can do that yeah, with I family. have friends who have done that. Yeah. And um, there's no uh, technical climbing. Yeah. Um, it just really rises out of the Serengeti out there. And uh, it's a lot less snow capped than it used to be because of global warming, unfortunately. 
Um, but yeah, if you, as long as you give yourself time to acclimate, my understanding is that's a, uh, the, the most doable of, of the seven peaks. Well, again, thank you. Where, where can we find you? Where can we find Invaluable? Um, so, you know, I, uh, I, I live here in Boston now, originally from New York. I'm uh, a Lexington resident, so uh, plenty of history there with a shot heard around the world. The Invaluable team is, uh, is here in, in Austin in the original uh, New Balance headquarters, so it's kind of a, a cool place to be. Um, we have offices here. We have offices around the world, and so, you know, now about 80 of us here in Boston, uh, about another 45 or so uh, globally. Um, and uh, virtually any place, we've got auction houses in 52 countries around the world and buyers in 180. So, you need uh, someone in Hong Kong, sign me up. Yeah. What, what about, I mean, online, is there a way someone through Twitter or email that can reach Invaluable? Or? Absolutely. So, invaluable.com obviously is our website. Yep. At our Weisberg is my Twitter handle. Our Weisberg at invaluable.com is my email address. Um, people should feel free to reach out to me at any time. You can get free tips on what to, what to auction on. All right. Well, thank, <laughs> thank you again. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much. So don't forget, visit Invaluable at invaluable.com or on Twitter at Invaluable Live. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're going to want to show your friends. Thanks again to Bango for sponsoring this episode and to all of you for listening. Remember, if you're an artist looking to create more or a buyer wanting to enrich your home with original art, visit bangoart.co slash podcast and save 30%.